What have you been doing since you left Indian Hill? Groton Hill, whatever it's called now. Yeah, it was Indian Hill when I left. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing a lot of booking, um, a lot of working with other musicians, a lot of like what I wanted to kind of graduate into. Yeah. For, from Indian Hill. So, yeah, it's been working out. That's awesome. I know that yeah. doing booking was a, definitely something you did not get to do. Last. I was booking shows for my own music series while working at Indian Hill. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of like that balance of like I, I got the DIY side of it and then the more professional side of it. Right. Um, but it was always kind of a goal of mine to kind of marry marry those two together as best as I could. And I think for the most part, I found that in this job. That's great. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Are you yeah. performing anywhere yourself? Here and there. Honestly, like since in-person concerts came back, I haven't been striving to get myself stage time. But I'll usually say yes when someone else asked me. Mm-hmm. You know, I realized there were a lot of Matt and I have talked about this a lot, like because we were both performing a lot before the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, we realized like there's something about that that I'm not eager to get back to. Not <laughs> sure what it is, <laughs> <laughs> but still kind of sussing out like who we are as live performers now, I guess. Hmm. My stepson, I don't know if you remember this. He's in his 30s. He's a comedian. Yeah. He really stopped performing live during the pandemic and has also not gotten back to it um for him he noticed that uh his relationship with the audience really changed Mm. and that there was a friction or a lack of generosity maybe or there's something Mm. where the dynamic that he used to really even if there were hecklers in the past i think that the and I, i sort of wonder he hasn't said this to me directly this is my hypothesis but i sort of wonder if there was like a posture that many of us adopted during the pandemic which is sort of like a a suspicion or a vague feeling of threat from Mm -hmm. other people and that it interacts with the dynamic of a performer in a crowd in a way that's really unhelpful yeah i can see that yeah i could definitely see that especially comedy i did a bunch of work in the comedy scene for a while and that was um something i'd noticed was it stopped like in the way that it was happening like right when covid started and yeah if i think about it that way i could totally see that that there was, even with the hecklers, there was a weird intimacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it just goes away when you feel like that heckler might actually be able to kill you. And it's uh, yeah. hard to shake that, you know. And there's also been, a, I think there's been a dynamic politically that's accompanying the pandemic at the same time that really reinforces some of the tension there. Like, it, even if you're, you don't think politics have to be part of the conversation for there to just be a sense of, like, infringement on that space. Yeah, we were doing a lot of shows together, nice. like the the year leading up to the to COVID, and then both had this like reset moment, like, oh wait, <laughs> why are we doing this again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what do we yeah. miss about it? And so much of it too was like the like everyone's working from home, and I I feel like there was a lot of online instruction. I don't know if instruction is the right word, but like encouragement from like influencers and people like that to be like, turn your side hustle into a real profession. And suddenly like where there was a lot of like artifice already on social media, it started turning into like, if you're an artist, now you have to like present yourself as the best artist and like add more artifice to your, to your social presence and add more, like flare and get yourself those high paying gigs and yada yada. And everyone just, I feel like a lot of people started taking art more seriously or maybe not even art, but like what they had been doing on the side 
as like a side gig before COVID more, more and more seriously. And so it's been on one hand, really cool to watch people like grow up into that and start taking control of the career that they want. Uh On the other hand, it's been kind of disheartening to see the loss of what's the word for it. When you have like a, like an art scene, like a music scene or something like that, there's a really cool feeling when you have a bunch of people in the same place, not taking anything too seriously. Mm-hmm. And who are just like kind of willing to do each other favors and willing to like add each other's skills to the other person's project. And there's this like startup mentality to it where let's not worry about profit yet. Let's not worry about what our name badges say just yet. Let's just be there and help each other and be as creative as we can be. And I feel like now that startup mentality isn't there anymore. And a lot of people that I know who were flirting with their side hustles prior to the pandemic are now like deeply entrenched in them and like very, very careerist about it in a way that they weren't before. That's the best way that I can explain it. There's more nuance to it, but there's no accountability too. like scenes are self-regulatory in that way. I found like they kind of, you have that one band that's like really, really, really ambitious. Like when I was a kid, I ran my first band like a business and Mm -hmm. we were (laughs) those guys, you know, we were like that band and like, there can't be too many of those in a scene or else it just becomes toxic. Mm. And that, but if you're like, if people like you and you like them and it kind of works, like you just kind of get accepted as being that band. And then there's, you know, you might have the stoner band and they're that thing. And like everyone kind of has their little lane. And I think scenes have a way of kind of evening themselves out while they're in existence. But online you don't, you only have the artifice, the analytics and success or failure really when it comes down to it. It's like your thing is either working or it's not you're either getting the numbers or you're not. Mm. And it doesn't have the same immediacy of like walking into the club and people kind of scoping each other out. I never realized how much I missed that. Mm. Yeah. Part of what I hear you both describing is the fracturing of community and the, the inability for communities to repair themselves in a different environment. So I think it's partly that. And I think it's partly like, I'm not sure the next structure or version of creative community has been fully hypothesized and like articulated in our society yet. Like it feels like we're maybe on the edge of deciding all together, this is how, like, this is the next way we're going to do this. But Mm -hmm. it feels like everyone is tentative and a little held back. There's also, here's the other thing that you're both describing that I am relating to, which is like, one of the things that's been really screwed up, by the way, do we curse on this podcast? Because I might. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been like 22 minutes and I'm about done with the like controlling my mouth. Um, no need. <laughs> it's longer than anyone's ever made it. So. <laughs> should get some really kind of a prize in the mail. Oh, I'm so happy to hear the longest lack, lack of profanity so far. Okay. Um, the relationship that Americans in particular have with work has just mm. been like absolutely wild in the last four years. And so you were talking about people who've become careerist about their side hustles. Yeah. People have gotten super side hustly about their careers, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and there's this like ambivalence about work and also this bleeding of the boundaries between home and work and relaxation and work and who am I and what am I showing? And is it okay if my cat walks through the screen of my, you know, there's all of that is just in flux and we have not settled yet again as a society And so it makes a lot of sense to me that not only are our 
outside of work interests sort of impacted by this shift and not being totally able to articulate what the next iteration looks like. There's also what work looks like has just been absolutely blown up for most people. And it feels hard to get your bearings. And that for some people can be a very creative time. But for most people, the amount of anxiety in that is so high that they probably can't be as creative as they would usually want to be. Like Mm. for me, there's an experience where like, some amount of anxiety is generated for my creativity and actually adds to my ability to create and put things out into the world. There's a way that I can take a risk because I'm feeling a little emboldened and a little like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's a little, but when there's too much anxiety and not enough uh, things to anchor on, it becomes nearly impossible to do things that you're willing to put yourself fully into. And there's a overall just inclination to hesitate and the inclination to hesitate for me is so antithetical to my creativity. It's one of the things that switching to working at a startup has broken through for me in a lot of ways. And I'm very aware that my creative energy is completely used up in work. I do not have space for it to be outside of work right now. Well, before we get too much further into this, let's introduce exactly what the topic is, and you can tell us a little bit about what you do at the startup. Sure. So we've been doing a series about meaning-making and exploring different ways that people accomplish a number of things. One is bring order to chaos. The other is to find purpose and kind of put themselves in a role where they can serve what they think is important about the world. And we've been kind of exploring the different frameworks that we might apply to life, right? So we thought that labor would be a good topic because we've talked a lot in the past about workaholism and kind of how we define ourselves as like (laughs) people who really enjoy laboring when it's the right kind of labor, Mm -hmm. but really let that labor consume us at at certain times. And um, it's been something that we've contemplated a lot. So labor as like, not just looking at it through the lens of workaholism, but looking at it through the lens of the identities that we assign to ourselves and how we kind of apply this purpose to life through the labor that we qualify ourselves for and that we devote more time to becoming more skilled at and, and things like that. So could you please tell us a little bit about what you do and the startup that you work for? And you can be as, as vague or detailed as, as you'd like. Sure. I'm on the people team at a Boston-based uh, e-commerce tech startup. My role is called uh, Associate Director of Employee Experience. So I work on culture and engagement uh, at my company. I work on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I lead all of our, our advisory board for DEI. Um, I am in charge of our rewards and recognition program. I'm in charge of principles and values. I do all of our learning and development. I'm building leadership development programming. It's truly like, Lucinda, what do you like and care about the most? (laughs) Go do that stuff. And I'm like, I mean, if you you ask nicely, I guess I might. (laughs) Um, It's a real privilege to be able to spend most of my day thinking about how to make people's work experience, meaningful, productive, empowering, and really, really positive on the group level, as well as individuals. I think a lot about how people make companies successful and how companies need to invest in their people. There's a mutuality there that's really, really important and really easy to lose track of. Um, I do really think about my work as investing. All of the learning that I create and deliver, all of the leadership development, all of the culture work, all of the DEI work, 
Um, it's all building, creating structure out of mostly nothing, and then offering it to people as an investment for current and future capability and skills, for thinking about how we cross-functionally collaborate and communicate and understand each other and work together in ways that are effective. And sometimes it's really hard. <laughs> it also takes like a hundred hours a week. <laughs> um, so we could talk about workaholism if you wanted to. I'm not love to. I'm I'm pretty much I'm I'm acquainted. I also here's the other thing that maybe is important. I don't know if this is something we'll talk about or not, but my career has been um, quite varied. I spent 12 years working at the federal government, which is about as polar opposite and antithetical to a startup culture as you can possibly get. Yeah. Um, and just layers upon layers of concurrence and bureaucracy, the disconnect between the work that you do and the impact it has on anyone, mm. whether you're doing servicing internal customers or external customers, is very hard to stay connected to. And I was very successful in that system, but I did not enjoy it very much. It was a difficult system for me to feel empowered in. And just generally, I, I found that I'm the kind of person who needs a lot of meaning to connect me to my work. It's really important to me that I feel connected to what I'm doing. And it was at that agency that I learned that I really love training, being a trainer and delivering learning programs at work, designing learning mm. programs. That felt like I was able to actually see the outcome of my work in real time, which is one of the things I find so energizing about learning and development. I'm also the child of teachers. And so it's probably I come come by it naturally. Yeah. Um, when I left the government, I spent five years as a stay at home mom, which is very similar to working for a startup, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have no idea what you're doing. There's never enough resources, a lot of all nighters, very, very meaningful and passionate work. Uh, a little bit hacky and crazy sometimes. Um, there's more diaper rash with stay-at-home moms, but only slightly more. Like it's really but just as many nap pods. <laughs> there's a surprising amount of crying in both. Mm. I, don't... Mm. <laughs> I think what I would say. So being a stay-at-home mom in many ways was the most meaningful and incredible thing I've done in my career. Mm. Um, it also felt like a total step back from my career, and so it's only now, in retrospect, five five years since returning to the workplace. I think it's five years, maybe six. Um, that I can look at it as a part of my career. There was a ton of anxiety during that time about whether or not I'd be able to re-enter the corporate world or any other world in a way that was meaningful and be able to be a high performer, be able to be someone who contributes. When I did return to work, um, Joel, you know, that I worked uh, at a music school, which in many ways was like very connected to the things I really care about. Mm. Um, it was not connected to the financial experiences that I needed to care about. Um, <laughs> not a good fit there. And after that, I went to grad school, got a master's degree in organizational psychology, which was a great experience. And I then worked in a convenience retail uh, company for two years doing leadership development for them. The reason I'm summarizing all that is because I've been the kind of person who has had a varied career. I have a lot of different dabbling experiences in different industries. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the ability to create a meaningful experience where I can see the outcome of my work. I feel connected to a purpose that feels meaningful and important and satisfying to me and where I'm able to use my energy and my ambition in service of my work, but also to create and uh, express my creativity is really important to me. And that's been either a source of satisfaction or a source of displeasure throughout my career. How much I'm able to do that is very closely connected to how good I feel about work. I'm curious how you would define 
career too. And this is going to sound really pedantic now, but the reason I ask <laughs> is um, I was thinking about this actually last night. I was reading about um, how to get into mountaineering, which is a longer story than we should go into now, but I'm trying to figure that out. And I saw an article referring to you know, somebody basically just kind of an amateur level, like they were skilled, but they weren't sponsored or anything. And they were referring to like, when you start your mountaineering career, like I have my mountaineering career, here's what it's going to go like. And I was thinking like, that's interesting because I never thought about it in those terms, but payment isn't the operative term. Like there, there's no compensation of any kind besides the joy of the mountains. So career isn't defined by pay necessarily. And then I thought how some people like kind of you were alluding to it, it felt like, you know, career can almost be synonymous with adulthood in a way. Like it can be yeah. kind of your grand trajectory that you're doing, like professional, semi-professional, whatever it might be, like your path, for lack of a better term. And then other people, it's so specific to their job. So if they change roles or they change jobs, it's a career change. Yeah. Or they put their career on hold to to go yeah. kind of do something else. And that's what made me think of it was when you were talking about being a stay-at-home mom and how that added to your overall career. That that really was interesting to me because I haven't really heard it described that way, but I feel yeah. very, like I relate a lot to that approach. So I'm curious how you would define it, at least for the purposes of today's conversations. Mm. It's such a good question, Matt. And I don't know if I have a fully thought out answer, but I'll start talking and we'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> so we do. <laughs> so I just did. Every time. <laughs> Usually a pretty good recipe for me. Um, one of the things that happened to me when I was a stay-at-home mom is I had a college reunion, one of those um, years. It was probably 10 years. I don't know. It was one of those years where, like, everybody came back to campus and there was a whole bunch of people. And I found myself talking to a lot of people who I'd known for a long time but hadn't kept in touch with. And the most common question was, what do you do? And I just felt so deeply excluded from anything meaningful or interesting. Mm. And I challenged myself while I was there. I was like, I'm going to ask better questions because this is so excruciating <laughs> to just feel like I don't have a career. Like yeah. I just have a job. And in trying to think about what was interesting that I wanted to share with my other people and to know about other people's experiences, one of the things that, that sort of came up for me was the ways that we spend our time in deep practice aggregate into some of the most interesting passions of our lives, like mm. accumulate together, right? Mm -hmm. And I found out that I love talking to people about the deep passions of their lives and connecting to important sources of meaning and identity. And I could not care less if someone made partner. I just like, <laughs> so I just so deeply, I'm like, oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to go. I'm going <laughs> to, I mean, I had better conversations talking about my chicken coop than I did talking about people's jobs. And so that experience really helped me change, start to change the narrowness with which I was thinking about my own career. And I started thinking about the skills, capabilities, interests, and passions that I was nurturing over a long period of time that were deeply connected to my identity and my sense of purpose in the world. What am I trying mm. to create or build? Who am I trying to help? What am I here to do? And the what am I here to do question is such a different question than what do you do? Mm. Um, I also have found myself jobs over my experience that what I do is not at all connected to what I'm here to do. And I've used volunteer activities like re leading a writing group or singing or parenting activities or friendships or personal interests 
to fill that, what am I here to do? What am I on the planet? Why do I exist? What's my purpose as a person? When my job just felt like this is something I'm doing because it gives me money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my, my, my job pays for the rest of my life. I've, I've lived that job for some time in my life. Mm. I'm really lucky right now that the work that I'm doing at my current company feels deeply connected to what I'm here to do as a person. I'm here to help people meaningfully connect with each other. I'm here to help people be creative and bring creative energy into the world. And I'm here to bring order to chaos a little bit. I'm here here to teach people how to be more effective with the skills that are innately inside themselves. Mm. Um, The question you asked was about how do I define my career? I think when I finished my master's degree and I was thinking about what the next iteration of my career was going to be, I actually did a master's thesis on this. Because I was like, I really just need to know this answer. So I'm going to make my master's thesis answer the main question of my life, which is how do you stop being a stay-at-home parent and start contributing in a meaningful way in a workplace? How does that happen for people? (laughs) What is that transition like? Uh, Because it seems completely impossible from where I was sitting. Hmm. One of the things I learned in that study is that the the model of like being a company man, uh, being a person who follows a career through one job or one employer throughout their whole life and like goes through a linear progression of promotion and plateaus and promotion and plateaus. That is not a model that really applies to anybody anymore. Mm. It's a very outdated model. And it's one that I was using as a default model that fed a lot of my anxiety when I worried about how am I going to reenter the workforce in a active way versus a maybe less active way as a stay at home parent. Mm. I think that the company man linear career model, an outdated model that is we have replaced it in everything except for the rhetoric. The rhetoric yeah. is probably still there about it, but I don't think anyone actually lives this anymore. Certainly no one I watch on TikTok, right? And TikTok is obviously, <laughs> obviously the source of authority for most culture at this point. Yeah. So that's part of it is that like, I think most of us are now carrying our careers inside ourselves versus inside the title and the work that we're paid mm. to do. I also learned from myself, and this is true in the research that I did as well, that career transitions sometimes can be just about like title change and experience. Many times they're about identity change. Mm-hmm. And so my experience returning to work after a period of being a stay-at-home mom was absolutely a period of identity change where there is a, a liminal space where you disassociate from your last identity and you kind of cast about in a way that is unclear which direction you're going. You seek models, you experience a lot of uncertainty and anxiety you eventually anchor on something new. You take um, steps towards that thing. You try it on and you spend time kind of um, going back and forth until you enter into a more anchored, solid identity state. And that can take six weeks. It can take six years. And for me, I would say that that, ex- that experience of identity really lasted from about a year before I stopped being a stay-at-home mom until my first promotion at my second job after returning to work. Like it was like a seven year period of kind of stutter stepping and trying things on. And how do I think about this? And during that time, one of the identity shifts I was doing was being someone who defines my career through what my job title is or through the work that I am paid to do to thinking about what the arc of connection is for me throughout my life that has felt meaningful, purposeful, and that I have deeply practiced, and that I'm willing to continue to deeply practice, and that I also hope to get paid for at least some of the time. 
when you were talking about you know questions to ask at the reunion and and questions relating to you know how people are doing not just what they're doing and that kind of thing matt and i were on this call just a few minutes before you you hopped on and he was like what have you been up to and i just said having a very productive week and matt's my best friend he knows what that means he knows that i've <laughs> yeah. been like all over the place running around like <laughs> <laughs> not giving myself enough rest and only sleeping for three hours at a time. But encompassed within that <laughs> is, uh, you know, all the details that I don't necessarily want to bore him with, but he knows that I've probably been recording music and I've probably been doing projects around my house and I've probably been like, you know, all these things that productivity mean, you know, when you're speaking in coded language to a friend. Now, you know, on another occasion when we had more time to talk, we would talk about you know, the specifics of some of those things, but it's enough that I can just say it's been a productive week. I don't have to say I'm doing this so that I can make X amount of money. I don't have to say I'm doing this so that I can like serve a part of my identity that I think is being underserved right now. There is just a joy in the productivity. There's a joy in like, cause also within that, hopefully I'm conveying, I've been spending a lot of time in flow state and being super productive. Yeah. Not always the case. But it could mean a little bit of workaholism and a little bit of flow state and a little bit of, you know, <laughs> sleep deprivation that I need to get better at. It's all those things. And so I was just thinking about how it's more of the how are you feeling and it's more of the what kind of life are you living? It's it's so much more of that. And that's all you're going to be relating to each other, as, especially as close friends. And again, you'll, you'd get into specifics and because they're topics of interest. But so much of that stuff is just shop talk at the end of the day. So why would it matter? Like, why would I want to listen to people talk about their promotion? I don't care about the extra responsibilities that they have now. <laughs> I certainly don't care about the extra money that they're making. <laughs> yeah. So it is great to, to start talking to each other as though it's our well-being and like our, our, though our ways that we are serving ourselves and serving our communities that we're working within than exactly the specifics of what we're doing and what our titles are. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. Flow state is one of the things that employee engagement work is really deeply focused on mm. because the benefits you get from engaged employees, which by the way is different than satisfied or happy employees. It's an important distinction when you're talking to HR folks because mm. some folks will try to measure employee satisfaction. And it turns out that like employee satisfaction is not actually correlated with any of the things that we find employee positive employee engagement is correlated with. So highly engaged employees um, are more productive. Their shareholders in their companies actually make more money. There's more revenue. They report much more senses of ownership and empowerment. There's just, there's a lot of different things that engagement offers that satisfaction does not, which is funny, even when satisfaction is high, mm. the difference are the behaviors that are associated with engagement in particular, much higher organizational citizenship. So like when you are the kind of person who goes the extra mile to help out another person on your team, even though it's kind of, it's not really your job to help them, but you see them struggling, you're like, I know how to do that. Let me just sit down, but I can do pivot tables. I'll show them how to do that. And you end up investing your time and your energy and things that are outside of your scope in a way that's productive for the whole group. That's an engagement behavior. Satisfied employees are not necessarily the kind of people who in the moment say, oh, it's I feel compelled and excited to share beyond my role or the scope of my role. And 
one of the things that happens with engagement, so all the positive things are associated with engagement, which is higher productivity, higher revenue at the company, better less uh, retention loss. Um, there's all kinds of different uh, positive things that are associated with engagement, which is why companies care so much about it. A lot of it has to do with the organizational citizenship, which is just the mutuality between people and people getting into states of flow where they're able to contribute from deep creativity and do so in an energized, resourced way over time. Mm. And engagement leads to flow in a way that satisfaction does not. Mm. Those behaviors that are associated with flow are the reason that engagement matters so much in the workplace. And the reason that it has such measurable returns um, is because of those states of flow where we're able to contribute from a highly creative, highly engaged, intellectually, physically, emotionally <laughs> high performing state where we're also nourished and excited and getting ourselves and our own needs taken care of. The first time I experienced flow, I was running a half marathon and I experienced it as like total disassociation from the physical grind of the moment. Mm. And I was in, I was in the experience in a way that I'd never been in the experience, but I was also disconnected from the <laughs> difficulties of the experience. I'm not a great runner. I'm not fast. <laughs> it's not, it's not like I'm going to win the half marathon. I am, I am gritting it out the whole time, but I experienced my first real experience of flow um, in a way that was like transcendent during that half marathon. And the thing that I think is so interesting when we talk about flow, when we talk about purpose and meaning and feeling like really satisfied and engaged at work is that a lot of the behaviors that are connected with flow, um, which are about going above and beyond, contributing in a way that's deeply personal and creative, um, tapping into those resources that you are really important and close to yourself. There are many times when that behavior is almost indistinguishable from really, really crappy work-life balance and really terrible. That's what I was just going to say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like in the moment, the, and even the word you used, which is productive, I have a really productive week. Yeah. Productivity, yes. Productive flow is like amazing. Productive burnout, almost impossible to tell the difference in the moment. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're kind of really finally on the topic of, of workaholism and, and how <laughs> these things relate. So you say like engagement and the the fulfilling feeling from a positive sense of engagement comes from going above and beyond. Those are the behaviors associated with people who feel engaged. It doesn't necessarily come from those things. Okay, okay. So, that, but I'm comparing that to you know workaholism, and as Gabor Mate has said, it's the drug of being wanted or the drug of being needed or one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> and you are you know you are filling a role because you want to be seen as valuable you want to be seen as the value that you can contribute to an organization or to a community and and so from both sides of this it's fascinating to me that one can be really really destructive and one can be really really rewarding and i wonder if as someone who works with an employee experience what measures are there in place to kind of disambiguate the workaholism from the positive engagement mm. a huge element that contributes to flow and is missing from workaholism or, or work-life balance or burnout is about being uniquely valued and belonging uh, in your authentic self. So there is an experience of flow and engagement where people feel seen and invited and valued and recognized in their uniqueness. 
and asked to participate from their whole selves and are invited to not spend energy masking as much as we might be tempted to in other circumstances. Mm. And those experiences of belonging and of being valued in an authentic way for who you authentically are create energy in a really powerful way. On the flip side, when we're looking at burnout or workaholism, the same practices might be there, but the energy is being spent, not created. Mm. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with an experience where you have to front and mask in order to feel valued. I'm fronting my availability and pretending like it's okay with me to work late so that you think I'm valuable. Rather than I'm so interested and excited in this work that I didn't notice at 7.30 and I'm late for dinner. Right. So the difference is whether you are assured of and getting energized from your sense of value and belonging, how connected your authentic self is being invited to be in that space. And I think a lot of it also has to do with how empowered you are to make a different choice in the moment. When I experience flow, I'm always empowered to do something different if I want to. Yeah. When I experience workaholism, burnout, high demand performance that I start to really struggle with, I usually don't feel like I have a choice. Mm. Now, it's probably not true that I don't have a choice. The thing that's critical to me there is I have no longer been able to retain and maintain my sense of my own empowerment, my own control over and de decision-making over how I spend my time. And some of that has to do with, I might just be really unwilling to accept the consequences, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes the environment becomes very high stakes and the consequences are like totally unacceptable to me that I might get fired if I don't get this report done by 9 PM or whatever. Mm. Sometimes it, there's abusive conditions happening where it's like, yeah, the reports due at 9 PM. It's like, yeah, but we stopped working at 5 PM. Like how could a report four hours after the office closes. Right. Mm. I use personal empowerment as a, bellwether as a, as a canary to predict where people start to feel disengaged and burned out. Because what I see is when people feel that like sense of like, here's how I show up. Here's what I'm trying to create. Here's the things I'm seeking and are purposefully engaged with. Here's how I'm feeling energized. Those experiences bring energy, bring high performance. They also, you can be like, okay, and I'm done. And I, <laughs> I'm going to close the book. When that's not happening, when folks are like, well, I have to do this because of X, Y, Z, or so-and-so is making me do this. I don't have a choice. If I don't do this, I'm going to get fired or I'm not going to get promoted or whatever. The scarcity mindset that enters into that destroys creativity and energy mm -hmm. and makes the spend on getting whatever the work done is really, really expensive. Scarcity, in my experience, and disempowerment makes the way we spend our energy really expensive. Mm -hmm. The other, just, just to say the thing about employee engagement that I think is so interesting is that like one of the key measures of employee engagement is the ability to recharge when you are not working. Right. Which I love that you have to look at the whole person. You can't just look at work. Yeah. Want to yeah. look at someone's engagement. Yeah. So I think I just want to say, 
it's not necessarily the behaviors it is all, but it is the whole person it's not just what you're doing at work it's the whole person yeah. and if we are disempowered we're losing our sense of our own control over what we're doing why we're here what we're trying to achieve what we need that to me is the first sign in a series of signs that leads towards burnout thinking about like the seeing the whole person and preventing workaholism and preventing burnout that way and taking into account how people need to recharge and so on. About a year ago, I was interviewing for a job at a nonprofit art center and I really, really wanted to work there. I didn't end up getting it. But one of the things that the person who interviewed me said to me was, you know, we're very conscious and very aware of the workaholism that ex as expected of people who work in the nonprofit art space. I would have never expected anybody in my life to say those words to me <laughs> because it's something that is exploited in so many places and in so many companies. And so we had an interesting, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if this is like a, an appropriate thing to be talking about at a job interview. I think it was personally, some people might not, but we're, I was kind of saying like, I'm a workaholic in a very specific way in that it doesn't drain me if I'm able to work during my alone time, if I have to work alongside other people for too long, I absolutely need recharging. If I don't feel alone for enough time during the day, I'm not going to want to work. And I want, you know, but I said, you know, they were talking about like, we need to rearrange our storage room and our basement space and everything. And I was like, if you leave me alone with that for a weekend with no one in an empty building, it will be organized. And I wouldn't consider that an expense of energy that I wasn't going to regain or that would be difficult to recharge from because I would have been the old, I, I'm just an introvert who needs a lot of alone time. That doesn't mean a lot of relaxation time. Mm -hmm. You know, it just means like I need to be alone with my thoughts and without people crowding me for a certain amount of time. And, and if that's the case, I'm infinitely energetic. So it's not so much a demonstrating value thing. It's not so much a being needed or wanted for a specific task and just wanting to get in there and, and do it. I'm just like, I enjoy being productive and I enjoy being in flow. And the best way for me to achieve that is to just be, just to have a building to myself with infinite possibilities in it. And that's kind of what I've learned about myself since the pandemic started is like, because I was in a lot of empty buildings. <laughs> um, and I realized about myself, if all I have is my own skills and a sense of possibility, I'm never wanting for anything. If I'm able to actually act on impulse to do something creative or something productive, as long as I have those conditions and the chance to recharge and be alone when I need to be alone, I'm good. I've realized more and more how much it's not the workaholism that I thought it was because I would get burned out a lot before the pandemic started. And then I realized like, I'm doing just as much work as I was now. What's the difference? And it was just alone time. And it was just decom allowing decompression, just a lot of like realizing that I don't do much of this so that I can be valued. I do a lot of this so that I can value the work that I do. Hmm. Is this where we arrived with it on the workaholism episode too? Because I'm trying to remember back to how we framed it that time. I feel like we've, the topic has evolved since then. Yeah. And I'm wondering if we touched on the idea that you and I are both like kind of flow state junkies in some ways, not yeah, really yeah. workaholics. You no, know? it's like, yeah, the idea of like the validation that it brings is, is interesting. I don't remember if we covered that then. I, 
I think for most of the people, I if certainly for me, my workaholic experience is the furthest thing from flow state that I could imagine. Mm. Which is not to say that when I'm in flow, I don't make choices to work longer, right? It's not about the time I spend or even necessarily the productiveness. For me, my workaholism, well, it's a couple things. I think that work is a dopamine distributor for most sure yeah (laughs) i get addicted (laughs) to that that stuff is good Mm. but (laughs) uh, dopamine's the shit right and i um i think there's a period there's a big part of work where i get a lot of dopamine i get that like i will get i'll sit here at my desk and get like adrenaline surges i can feel it's like i'll feel all my veins dilate at once i'm like ooh, somebody's cruising that good dopamine shit right (laughs) um and that's usually, you know, I'll get an email, be like, someone be like, good job, or thanks for doing this, or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to post that for 45 minutes. <laughs> for me, um, workaholism is about when I'm chasing the dopamine and I'm not getting it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good way to put I wish we had <laughs> able to say that. That's, I think, everything I was trying to say in that whole episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. And I, real quick, I was going to end that story saying, I forgot where I, I lost my place in the story. But um, <laughs> what I said to the person that was interviewing me was like, if I end up working here, you should let me be a workaholic because it's in both of our best interests. <laughs> Because I don't, I feel like I do get just as n- enough of the dopamine surge when mm. I need it. And it's, and it, again, it's not, I'm sure that it has been a people pleasing thing in the past, you know, in, in certain kind of low, low points in my life. But I think it's a matter of being given the agency to choose what you're going to, to do the work on as well. Like currently at my job, I choose a lot of the projects that I'm going to work on and develop further. And so I can kind of, and I have an assistant, so like I can kind of delegate work that I know won't be fulfilling to me or physical labor that I can't actually physically do. And I can, you know, choose which parts of the the project are going to be best served by myself and which parts will be best served by somebody else. And so like, I think a lot of it is having that agency as well. The agency to me is... It feels synonymous with what I was calling empowerment earlier. Yeah, yeah. Right. That feeling of like, I'm in charge of my own destiny. I can make the choices I need to make to spend how I need to spend. I can go solve the problems that need to be solved by me. Hmm. And I have resources to go solve the problems I'm not going to solve or lack the resources to solve personally. There's other resources that I can go tap into. The dopamine that happens during flow is some of the best shit there is. Yeah. And the dopamine you get when you're being a workaholic is crunk (laughs) (laughs) what do you think about workaholism as a defense against the the world or reality too Mm -hmm. i've noticed this throughout my own life that at times i've been probably whatever i would have defined as a workaholic partially because i understand it and I don't understand other things. And I've heard people that are like, not to be like dramatic about it, but I've heard people that are like soldiers and stuff say the same kind of thing that I would say when someone asked me why I was going on tour a lot. And it's like, I, I get it. Like, I understand how to go on tour. I understand how to wake up and go do these these things, you know, follow my itinerary, do the gig, all that shit, go back to the van, go do it again. Like, that lifestyle makes sense to me coming home and slowing it down to a crawl and having to like actually uphold relationships and like, 
you know, live a life. I don't understand that on a certain level. And I noticed at, a, at some point that workaholism for me was this like force field that as long as I stayed behind it, even if it was at the expense of a little bit of burnout, I lived in a world that I, I get, you know, and where like consequences made sense, actions led to, you know, reactions that made sense. Um, it, everything was like pretty exciting and pretty fun and there was enough flow state there, but I never really considered that until this point in my life that like that even could be a reason why some people are just like locked in with their work long term, you know, because like that's if you take that away, what's there? Yeah, I mean, I hear you describing a practice of reducing the variables, right? Like you're kind of, yeah, all these things I'm just not doing. <laughs> I'll do these to excess. I'm not doing this stuff. But also like shifting the context, you know, because that's I used to think like, all right, it's because I don't want to do these things. But then I realized like, well, no, it's when I'm out on the road, for instance, like I have relationships, like close relationships with the people that I'm with. But it's in a context that I get. Mm. And same with like, I have to budget. I have to think in very kind of like grown up, like I'm not talking about the road, like party. I've never really had those kinds of trips. It's always been like pretty buttoned down. It's just like, it makes sense. It's it's a job and I know how to do that job. And that's the way that I've heard people that are in like the military describe it. Like they, they go with the people that they're close to. They all relate. They all have the same experience. They know how to do this job and what that job's going to lead to. But when they go home, they can't relate to people or they can't like justify some of the stuff that has a certain amount of importance and as soon as they get back into that workaholic mode they're like oh yeah okay i can breathe like i get this mm. and i just i wonder how common that is sometimes like how many people just like somebody that might be like a lawyer working 110 hours a week like they just know how to be a lawyer they know how to digest information that way they know how to walk up in front of a you know a board or a court or whatever and just absolutely kill it and, you know, size people up and whatever they have to do. But they don't know how to drive their kid to school and and be gentle and, you know, like those kinds of things are a different skill set. So I just I wonder how prevalent that is sometimes when we mm. when we talk about these types of things, especially in the US, I guess. I don't know if this would generalize. Yeah, it's also I hear you describing environments where the not only the rules of interaction but also the rewards are very clean and clear. Mm. I'm listening mm. to you talk about tour. And the intensity of it and how hard that work is. But in some ways, it's also like not hard. It's not as hard as just being in your life in some ways. Um, yeah. Um, I, I hate the slowdown. Yeah. I hated, <laughs> even on tour, I hate the parties. I love the tunnel vision. Right. Yeah. Wow. One of the things I keep thinking about is what it's like to be a stay at home parent with little kids. Because I got to tell you, the way that people survive that, it's through routine. Yeah, it is through structure and routine, because the thing about stay at home parenting is it is the most relentlessly boring thing that you can do. That is also like totally confusing and un impossible to understand. It's like, <laughs> how can this simultaneously be so boring and also a complete freaking mystery that I cannot solve the problem to? Like the most boring things are easy to understand. <laughs> it's just boring. <laughs> This is like impossible to understand and relentlessly boring and all day and all night for months at a time. And the rules of your kid change every couple weeks in a way that is like totally mystifying. It's also deeply connected to your identity. It's like if your kid is crying in the grocery store line, you feel like a failure as a human. And like the question of what am I here to do is like suck. I'm here to suck. That's all I do. Right? <laughs> 
You've got to write a book called I'm Here to Suck Parenting on The stay-at-home mom story. Um, but the, the way that people survive, the way, like, when you see people who are, like, really surviving that, a lot of them are turning to really strict regimented routines it's also how daycares work it's like okay it's 905 mm. we are watching this show at 922 we're gonna do this we're gonna have the lunchtime is 11 we nap at 1205 to 115 like i mean it doesn't if the baby sleep wake her up it's time to wake up we're on a routine here we got to do this and um that was not the way i, I stay at home parented and <laughs> as a consequence that some of that time as i said relentlessly boring relentlessly mystifying um it was also like so overwhelmingly scary i didn't know if it was if i was doing the right thing mm. and the routine would have the routine gives an answer to are you doing the right thing it's like well is it nap time are you are you napping like yeah <laughs> yeah just, exactly like it has a quick answer like am i doing this right and then yeah. the absence of the routine am i doing this right becomes like a very existential impossible to answer question the routine helps a lot through that and that makes sense. That would connect to a lot of addictions too. Like if you were an alcoholic, you know, it's, it could be just as much an effort at reducing ambiguity as it is at getting high, you know, like mm. a lot of times it seems like, you know, people would turn to anything that they might be addicted to, whether it's a practice or a drug or, or a profession, because at least there's an answer. At least there's action reaction. There's not a day of who the hell knows what. Or like I just said this to my girlfriend. I wonder how that's gonna go. Like I wonder if there's gonna be ramifications for that later on. <laughs> like you know, that's just I never considered it that way. But that is probably the thing that I like the most about like touring is it's just well, is it seven thirty? Am I on stage? Okay, there's a flowchart for all of this. <laughs> you know, it's not like it's my anniversary. What do I do? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so it's yeah, that totally is a lot of it. I've been thinking about flow since you and I started talking about this. Mm -hmm. For me, the quality of attention that you pay is hugely connected to an experience of flow. Sure. Yeah. There's sort of a, a simultaneous like absorption. Like I'm, I'm absorbed yeah. in a problem or an activity or something like that. it has my full attention and I'm really, really focused and engaged but there's also, when I'm in a flow state, there's also, I just I talked about this earlier, like, it's not disassociating, like, in a trauma way. It's like a, like, there's a part of my attention that steps outside of that absorption and kind of is, like, looking at the wide-angle lens of what's yeah. going on. And so, for me, the attention experience of flow is, like, a simultaneous forest entries experience. I am deeply engrossed, and at the same time, I've pulled back and I have like a big vista in front of me mm. and I'm able to kind of be in both places or have my attention in both way, both places. Those times are such creative experiences for me. Yeah. I, w I was thinking about, I, ha I would hesitate to even call it attention. It's more of like, how do I say that's a task. It's so much of your attention or your focus more and more and more so that eventually you kind of just become the thing vibrationally. Mm, mm -hmm. And then you no longer need to devote what would conventionally be considered attention to it because you just kind of know it, you know, there's a point and you were just, you were talking about running and 
And Matt's a big runner. He does a lot of trail running, and he's about to run a, fit, a marathon this weekend. Two days. Two days. Yeah. Um, first one. I had the yeah. same exact experience, by the way, as you with a half. I ran my first half last year. I went into it with the same mindset, the same kind of like, I am not going to win this. I'm just, I'm going to do this thing. And I, yeah, I loved it for the same reasons. So it's mm. funny that you brought that up. Well, I was going to say, and feel free to take off with this, this thought too, Matt, but like, I've, I've had that same experience where, you know, at first you might be focusing on the steps you're taking. At first you might be focusing on like, okay, I ran a little bit too hard yesterday. I still have a little bit of pain in my ankle or something like that. Eventually that goes away. And eventually you're not focused on breath so much anymore. And there's a point between getting acclimated to the activity and getting tired when you become the run itself. And I think that that's flow state. It's like when you're, you're not really paying attention, it's just a combination of, of like muscle memory and like, like spiritual attunement. That was something I, I really liked about trail running, which I, I did that a lot leading into that half. Cause I ran a little bit when I was younger, but I never, I just kept getting hurt. I never like found a way to do it. That was right for me until honestly, like probably last year when I just decided like, I'm going to just try this. I figured out what ultra running was and I just decided like I in no way, shape or form can like do this <laughs> yet at least, but I like this approach. So I just started saying like, all right, I'm going to not do speed work and all the track team bullshit that kept breaking me and I'm going to do trails and I'm going to just try to go into it with this mindset and see if this works better. And that ended up being the thing that like grabbed me and just has not let go, which was especially running in trails. It was like, you do get to that flow place, but also like if you get out of it and you start losing track of the sometimes literal trees or literal forests, like <laughs> you get these reminders that you need to snap back in. Cause I would fall every single time that that would happen. And it just, it was something I was able to practice. And then as I was able to get better at running, it started to, like Joel said, it became more automatic. And like, yeah, it's just a special feeling when you get to that place with with a skill or a pursuit or anything. And I've gotten there with in professional ways too, with certain things. And it's just, and like, it feels different, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I've realized more and more. I just, I value that feeling so much out of the canon of things you can experience in, in life. Like that's one of my absolute favorite things and that's why i think i've gotten to a place where i'm like i'm probably way more of a flow junkie than a true workaholic because it's just once you feel that feeling like how do you pretend you don't want it again all the time you know it's funny when i think about that experience of flow with running Mm. the thing i had to move through to get there not so much in that day but just on, on the whole with my running there were a couple really key things there for me one of them was i had to confront that I was absolutely terrified of being uncomfortable. That's a good way to do it. <laughs> I mean, it's a great way to confront your fear of discomfort. Uh, it's right in your face. It's like, well, <laughs> I'm either going to die or I'm going to finish this run uncomfortable. Those are the two, yeah. <laughs> those yeah. two options because comfort is not a choice. That's literally what I said to myself at the starting line of it. It was like, it's a stretcher or it's profound discomfort, but... Either way. That's, it's a very simple choice. <laughs> and it wasn't even, right. So for me, it was actually, it was the fear of discomfort was much more debilitating than the actual discomfort. I, I was extremely psychologically held back by a fear of discomfort. And a lot of my training, not so much the physical training, like there was obviously physical training of like preparing around a half, but a lot of my training was the mental practice of allowing myself exposure to the fear of discomfort and sticking with it and being like, I am uncomfortable. I'm afraid. This makes me scared. I don't like this. I'm afraid I'm never going to feel comfortable again. 
I'm like, and I would have to like narrate yeah. this to myself and just be like, this is happening and it's going to be okay. Or maybe it's not going to be okay. And it's still happening. And like, the fear of discomfort and fear in general, huge, huge barrier to flow for me. And then I had to really profoundly change my attitude of what success looked like. And I had to embrace a definition of success that included suffering. Mm -hmm. I had this very Pollyanna uh, intellectual expectation of success in which success looks like doing it and doing it easy. Mm. It's not just doing it right. It's doing it without breaking a sweat. Mm. And I had to be like, hey, you know what success (laughs) looks like now? (laughs) It looks like crying yeah. <laughs> bleeding, blisters, not being able to breathe, being red faced, uh, being right. Like, and like, I had to sort of talk, like, like shepherd myself and be like, Hey, you know what? The thing that makes you interesting as a person isn't what you do well without trying. It's the things you're willing to suffer and suck at. That's mm. what makes you interesting. That's what makes you a, a story that people want to learn more about. That's what gives you depth. Like, Nobody gives a shit what you're just naturally good at. You don't have to try it, but no one cares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doesn't care at all. In fact, they probably resent that about you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like being, being willing to confront my fear, being willing to get uncomfortable and then being willing to like redefine success to include suffering. It wasn't until I did those things that I started being able to experience flow in any sort mm-hmm. of real repeatable way that was a big thing about that like i mentioned kind of that ultra approach to running that like that was what kind of clicked was and i remember feeling it profoundly like at the starting line like in the shoot for that first race just looking around at all the other people and i was i owned one pair of it was like november or something so it was freezing i had one pair of tights to my name and they were like these ripped like leopard print tights that i would wear on stage sometimes so i was like oh screw it that's what i'm gonna do and like I had a tube of Bengay duct tape to one arm because I just didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> and I was like, Jesus, I just need to be prepared for this eventuality. And like, <laughs> I just all sorts of things like that. And I'm looking around at all these other people and they look like freaking gazelles. Like they're just like, they're stretching in ways I never thought to stretch, which scared the shit out of me. They all have like beautiful gear. Their number's on the right spot, like a place where it looks like it's not going to be a pain in their ass. Like <laughs> all of this just looked really well done. And I was like, oh, I am in the wrong shoot. I should be over in the 5k shoot or going home or whatever else. <laughs> and like, as soon as we started going, I, I noticed that feeling just dwindling and like two, three, four miles in, like once we all kind of settled into our zone, the two things that really occurred to me were like, first of all, no one gets out of this looking pretty. Like all of us are going to be, <laughs> we're going to look bad. We're going to feel bad. It's an ugly experience. And that's part of why it's so awesome to do stuff like that. It's like, it is a great equalizer. Like everyone can flaunt their stuff at the start, but like, yeah, you're, you're not going to look that way when you cross. And the second thing was that like the people that are naturally gifted at this just aren't interesting. It's like, I, I don't care. Like the times can be really impressive and I'm never going to not be blown away by like a marathoner who can run whatever the, I don't know what the hell the fastest one would do now, or like a miler who can do like a three something mile. Like that's never not going to blow my mind. But at the end of the day, I'm like, all right, you've got, the right genetics, the right work ethic, you're 19, that's, you've got all the right stuff and you applied it correctly. Like there's nothing interesting to that. 
it's impressive, but that's the end of it. But I love being not a fast runner. Like I love being where I was in the pack because everybody around me looked like they were fighting a goddamn war just like I was. Like we were all like like ragged breath and bleeding and like, come on, man. And this one guy kept just yelling inspirational quotes. He just kept going like, this is where the money's made. <laughs> no, it isn't, dude, but we're going to fucking kill this thing. <laughs> and like, it was awesome. And I was like, this is cool because every single person here is here for a reason that I'm sure is going to change the course of their life, at least in the near future, once they cross that line. Mm. And that is infinitely more interesting and infinitely more valuable than somebody who just has the right bone structure and new one to use it. Mm. Like that's who gives a shit, you know? And there are so many other ways that that can apply that it's just, yeah, I found like once that happened and it was really through that training, like once I started to embrace like how exciting and awesome and interesting that ugly stuff can be, it's like, yeah, I can't let that go now. It's just, that's a, that's a good world to live in. And those are the, the good people to be around. Mm. You asked a question at the beginning of this, Matt, about career you're talking about mountaineering. Do you feel like you have a ultra running career? Uh, no. <laughs> I would like one. <laughs> what would what would make that real for you? Um, I don't know. I, sometimes I think just time. Mm-hmm. I think if I if I'm willing to embrace that definition of it, which I think that I am, because looking back through my life, I've embraced it in numerous ways, and um, we've talked probably on mic a bunch on this show that like that's just the way that I get excited about stuff. Like I'll just throw myself into it with that sort of implication that like, I'm going to do all of this and it's never true, but I just like, if I decided tomorrow, I want to get into football. It has to be that little tiny piece of me. That's like, cause I'm going to the NFL. I don't care that I'm going to be 45 next year and I've got two bad knees. Like I'm going to be that guy. They make a documentary about like, I have to have that little thing. Cause that's what gets me so amped up and excited. So I think there is a little part of me, no matter what I do passionately, that looks at it like in a way that's very much compatible with thinking like, yes, I have a mountaineering career ahead of me. But Mm -hmm. I also am really wary of kind of getting there prematurely because I I don't like when people jump the gun on that. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like I need to earn it before I can start saying things like that. Whether it's physically, like in ultra running, I would say for me, it would be like having run a couple of them, like having run a couple of like hundred milers where I'm, which would include a tremendous amount of training and a tremendous amount of mistakes and like enough that I could show up at a starting line with people who have done them. And I'm at least, I can refer to it as comfortably as a we thing. Mm. I think at that point I would be comfortable seeing it. I don't think it's the money or the, the accolades or any of that kind of stuff. I think it's just the you kind of know your your niche and you know that like this is something that extends two directions in time now and I don't know I, I just at least personally that's where I feel comfortable putting it but, mm. but yes I would love to be there someday <laughs> but I don't feel like I'm there now so we've kind of talked about that company man lifestyle being abolished and we've talked about like flow state being about like what you do well and like what you are absorbed in. We've talked about work-life balance a little bit, but I think this topic in particular begs the question when it comes to work-life balance, when people identify themselves as what they do, just not always a bad thing, you know, like clergymen, for example, don't have much of a work-life balance because their approach to their work is monastic in nature. And so 
I would wonder if you have seen any of that in your experience. I don't imagine it's super common in corporate culture, but I would imagine it's kind of common when people say, you know, like an accountant, for example, probably has a decent amount of work-life balance. A mechanic probably has a decent amount of work-life balance. But there are people who necessarily, or maybe even just their preference is to approach their work more monastically. I wonder what your experience has been maybe witnessing people who have that kind of approach. Say more about what you mean about approaching work monastically. Basically, if you define yourself as this is my career, this is my skill set, I will use this skill set to sustain my livelihood and contribute to the world. And this is what I will be to the community and to myself. And that is the role that I will serve forever. In my observation, some folks experience deep resonance when that is their experience. Mm. Their whole life rings with that sound. Yeah. And I've definitely seen people like that. Everything they do, that's what they're doing. And they're always doing the thing they're here to do. Like, it's just, the, it's sort of palpable. I, I think I would actually call that like an actualized person. I think that there's mm. some image I have is of a person who's advanced in years, who's like, somehow woven together the threads of themselves into a really strong cord, right? Often a person mm. who practices in faith, but not necessarily that, but just like someone who takes um, an experience of deep abiding curiosity, faithfulness, fervor, discipline, and that like mm. resonates throughout their life. And that feels like there's a, it always has the same tone. I've also seen people who singularly identify with their work. There used to be a thing in the company I worked for years ago at the uh, government organization. There were a lot of lifers there, people who worked in public service their whole life. And this happened four or five times where someone would retire and three months later would be dead. Yeah. Because there was not anything else. There was no flow. There weren't relationships. There wasn't a sense of purpose. And none, none of those people, the people I'm thinking of, none of them left work because they were sick. They all retired thinking, oh, I'm closing a chapter of my life. And like, they just didn't have any other part of their life. I can think of four unique people who that happened with. And there was something incredibly tragic about that. I mean, the tragedy partly was just like they had just retired and all of them. It was, I mean, just weeks, just a few weeks after, really. And this, there was this like impression like... Here he was at the beginning of his retirement, and he missed out on this future that is right there. He's finally retired. He finally was going to do all the things he wanted to do. And mm-hmm. I mean, the, the loss of the possibility of doing the things you want to do is a, a palpable, terrible loss. Also, yeah. to live your life in such a way that you have put off the things that you think will give you joy and purpose until such time as you can work them in is also kind of a tragedy. Right. So I, the way we've talked about it, when, yeah. when they died, sort of said like, oh, they were robbed. They were robbed of their life. But it was very much like the way to talk about it was like, this was something terrible that happened to someone. And I've always thought like, yes, it, it was a terrible tragedy. And I've also thought like, I should remember to live my life now rather than saving up my life to live later. And that was a big part of why I left my government job 
I left after 12 years. Nobody leaves the government after 12 years. It's sort of like you get past three and you're in forever. Like it's very, like, I did this weird thing where I was there for more than a decade. And then I was like, well, it's not for me. Um, when I left to stay home with my kids, part of it was like, I just, it was really clear to me the things that I was mentally putting off to live later. And I knew I didn't have the later. I knew that later was not going to exist with little kids. That like, if I, if I put things off because I was investing, I was so singularly invested in my work life in that moment. And I put off attention that I could give to my family or I spent my time without feeling empowered about when my boundaries needed to be erected and maintained. Um, I'd miss my kids. I, as it is, I, I left work when my daughter was um, just about one. I don't remember. She asked me all the time, like, what was my first word? I don't know. I don't remember. I was busy. I remember my son's first word, but I was too busy and too distracted and not paying quality attention enough to my daughter. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew it. And I was like, this, I won't be able to put this off. I can't just wait 10 years and invest in my career now. And then, and I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with the singular focus of purpose and passion and curiosity and growth that a person can bring to that kind of career. Yeah. I do think though, that the people who are able to do it, do it with their full attention. And I was not doing it like that. I was splitting my attention in a way that was absolutely fractured and unsustainable and very unsatisfying and had huge losses associated with it. So I guess there's one other thing I want to say, which is it's not the same monastic sense of purpose that we just talked about, Mm. but the resonance that can come along with that is something I see in my colleagues sometimes and really admire. Mm. What I mean is there are a couple people I work with who are so consistently themselves in every aspect of their work and every Mm. aspect of their interactions. And the striving, the like performative knowing all of that stuff just is, it falls away. Mm -hmm. And those folks, I would do anything with people like that. I would Mm -hmm. work, let's dig ditches. Like I, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't care. Like I wish to be that kind of person. I'm always thinking about how I can live a more integrated life, integrated meaning my essence, myself, my Lucinda is permitted, invited, and excited to show up in all the stuff I'm doing with consistency, with curiosity, with practice. Maybe I'm going to show up red faced and sweating, like I, but that I can like have that consistency. And I think that when you can get to that place where you're able to powerfully show up from your full self, I think that looks a lot like the resonance that comes from monastic dedication flow and work. Yeah. I was going to say there's a, maybe how some people find that monastic flow in their work is that what resonates within them just happens to fit very well within a certain career, like their true authentic self and the skills that they bring, the presence they bring to community. It just happens to fit right within like you know, a policeman or a teacher or a whatever they, they choose to be. 
in their life. And there are some people who I think find that same release and that same resonance just in their selves that it has nothing to do with their career. And that's perfectly fine. You know, people who aren't necessarily identified as their profession, but have those traits and have that authenticity to spread and to show up with and to be present with and to be seen as, you know, and it made me think of, you know, for, I went to school to be a teacher and for the longest time that was the plan. And every once in a while, my dad will ask me, Hey, you still want to teach? And I'm like, I'm in my mid thirties now. That's long behind me. (laughs) I decided not to be a teacher when I was like 22. So it still comes up from time to time. And he recently said, you know, he didn't phrase it this way, but he said something like, I'd hate to see you waste your talent by not teaching. And what I said back, again, I'm paraphrasing, but what I said back was, I'd hate to waste my talent on only teaching. And so I was kind of explaining, like, I understand that you recognize a set of skills within me that would have a, what would see a good outlet in being a teacher. But I'm telling you that those same set of skills would be deadened by doing only that. And they'd be much better released into the world and, and, and shared with others in other forms that I don't want to put limits on. So it's very much a, um, I see a skill set that I have and I see curiosities that I have and I see passions that I have and I don't necessarily want them to have one container and one outlet and one inlet and be singular. Um, I very much do find a good deal of meaning making through labor, but the labor is curiosity and the labor is passion and compassion and the labor is like the work that I can do in any field that I choose to do it in, but I need that variety and I need that like open, boundless possibility in order to stay passionate about sharing those things with the world. I'm going to draw a connection. I don't know if it holds up completely, but I wonder if the the box of teacher is connected to the routine of touring that Matt was talking about earlier. Yeah. Where there's just like a, there are parameters. There are, ways to do it right it's 7 30 you're doing this this is what you're supposed to be doing and there's a lot of comfort and a lot of management of the variables of experience in that and connecting that to my experience of having to master my fear mm-hmm. as part of a process towards living a life that's more likely to have flow in it mm-hmm. i think sometimes the framework that's easy or like the teacher framework, it's not that it's a bad framework, but sometimes the routine is a routine because you're trying to manage fear rather than because it's an energizing way to live. Right. And I think for, for parents, there's a lot of fear about what it means for your child, even if they're in their mid thirties to be an explorer of curiosity like are there benefits with that does it it come with dental what's going (laughs) (laughs) so i i can understand i can i i have been the kind of person who felt like who thought like that Mm -hmm. the past about my own life um and i've in my evolution of thinking about career as a specific job versus career as like the ways i invest and show up and do my purpose in the world being able to live with the ambiguity of not always having a sense of what the right answer is and having consequences and choices and experiments is the way through that for me. It's not for everybody. 
for everybody, mm. the, the fear is like, it is a full stop barrier. Sure. You know, part of it too, you used the word generative a few times at the beginning of this conversation. And I think that plays a big role in it for me. When I was student teaching, you know, I was working at the high school that I went to. And at the same time, I was uh, dabbling in journalism and I was writing for a local paper. And my editor said to me, why don't you start a school paper if the high school doesn't have one, you know, be like the supervisor. And so I did. And a lot of like, a lot of students took interest in that. And I found myself teaching this after school journalism workshop and getting a lot of reward out of that. But a lot of the reward was putting together the paper was like getting on the computer and creating the aesthetic of the publication because that was the generative thing. And so having to contrast that against like, okay, I'm also helping to teach these classes day in, day out. And like, do I want to read the same books for the same curriculum year after year? Do I want to teach these same lessons year after year? And I'm sure that there's a part of me that would enjoy the sort of monastic nature to that. There's a certain comfort and security and routine in that that, again, brings order to the chaos. But the part of me that will always win out is the part that longs to be generative and the part of me that longs to create things and bring new things into the world. And not that teaching doesn't do that, but the part of me that absolutely won out was, I need to create. I don't want to keep you much longer. Matt, any other final Yeah, questions? one more question. Uh, we've been asking everybody this. Feel free to answer it however you want. Um, why live? Mm. <laughs> I'm flipping. Um, it's way better than the alternative, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, I don't want that to be my real answer. Um, one of my answers is it feels great. Being alive mm. feels great. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. One of the best feelings I can think of is really <laughs> feeling alive. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I chase that. And the moments that I don't feel fully alive, the repetition, the redundant, the places where I'm in a routine or I'm I'm just like rote, I'm not fully engaged, I'm not paying attention, I'm not feeling empowered, those are not nearly as good. Like a feeling really alive feels great. Um, why live... I think the ways people have made sense of that question is one of the most interesting things throughout human history that we can talk about. Mm. And we are beings who are both blessed by and burdened by the ability to wonder at our own existence. It feels like a fundamentally human thing to be able to ask and then puzzle out the answer to that question. It's a burden to us too. It's hard. Not, not knowing the answer for why live is a very painful place. And I also think that life can be so shitty and painful mm -hmm. and hard and lonely and rough and boring and relentless. Mm. And all of that is part of it, too. It's not just the feel good parts like that is also being alive. So I guess part of my answer is like the reason to, to live, like why live is because I want to go through to the next thing. Yeah, I really, I like how varied the answers are because you're right, there's no right one, but it's it's so interesting. Like that's why we've been asking people because it's just such a simple and kind of deceptively difficult question. Just the spectrum of things that 
people will say if you ask them that. We've gotten a lot of why nots actually, which is interesting. A lot of why nots. But yes, yeah, I don't know. I think sometimes too, it's it's unique in the sense that like we we don't we've talked about this probably a few times too. But like the whole kind of Satra idea that like we don't consent to this mm. initially. <laughs> like we just kind of wind up. It's like if you woke up in someone's back seat and someone asked you why drive you're like i don't fucking know <laughs> ask him <laughs> you know so it's like <laughs> here we are but yeah it's, it's just it's fun to think about for some reason mm-hmm. so it's just it's been neat to have the opportunity to ask a bunch of people i mean i said because it feels good earlier i also want to say like <laughs> this is related to the the thing where i had to redefine success to include suffering yeah i just have absolutely no patience for optics. Mm. The like success where you do it without breaking a sweat, it's just become so meaningless. It used to be the thing I thought was the most important. And now it's just boring and meaningless. And like, as someone who's lived through and with significant trauma in my life, who has all kinds of challenges and whatnot, like I, the gritty shit, man, like that's important. I'm not talking about life is like, oh, and when there's puppies and rainbows, it's worthwhile. Like, I mean, like, like shitting your pants on a run because you are not going to make it. And you, <laughs> you just have to keep going. I mean, like bloody giving birth. I mean, having no idea what you're doing. I mean, like being wrong, being absolutely ineffective at stuff. That too. Mm-hmm. There's a lot in that. Mm. If you're showing up if you're if you're pursuing optics i don't really feel like that's living but the part where you're like wrestling through the mud yeah sign me up for that Mm. i'm not actually asking the universe to make my life harder i just need to clarify that uh but (laughs) (laughs) i am not saying that only the good parts of life are what make it worth living i'm Mm. saying life itself the dirty messy vulnerable gross gritty i like that shit too mm. yeah that's a really good point that's what i'm hoping that this first marathon's like in two days like that type of experience is um i always just have the thought at some point in it and same i'm not asking the universe i don't think the universe <laughs> listens to this fucking podcast but i'm not asking the universe <laughs> to make this 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 way i'd love it to be smooth but there is that feeling of like oh we're in it now motherfucker like i just love that kind of feeling of you're just in the game, whatever that game is. Yeah. It's like you are playing the hell out of it. And it's maybe that's just a coping mechanism. I don't know if that's actually like <laughs> no. a productive thing, but I just enjoy the hell out of it. And yeah. it's, uh, yeah, there's something big about it. That's real. And that's, that's good shit. You're going to have a great race. I'm excited. For, I'm excited to hear about it. You're going to have a great race. <laughs> Thank you. We'll see. I'm ready for it, but it's a big one. Yeah. But that's, that's why we do these things. Yeah. 100%. My friend Mike. We call him Rocco. Rocco uh, is a marathoner. He's done many, many marathons. And he, whenever he goes and spectates, his sign says 26.2 is such a stupid number. But, <laughs> and he stands around mile 18 and he just holds that sign and he doesn't cheer. <laughs> and he gets to the most high five. <laughs> At that point, people are like, God, that guy, I, that guy, I know that guy. <laughs> because again, like, it's not just the finish line moments, right? Like, it's the. Yeah shitty mile 21 where you're like oh this really sucks and it's really hard and it's not nearly as pretty as i thought it was gonna be mm-hmm. yeah and there's rocco 26 <laughs> <is> stupid <laughs> that's awesome yeah 
<laughs> I'm really curious about that point too. Cause I was thinking, you know, like we, you talk about a race like that and you're just like, oh, it's like, like 26 miles, basically 26 miles. Like that's how everybody says it. And it just occurred to me at one point that like, I bet you anything, having not done it, that that last point two is going to be <laughs> the most consequential thing. Cause that's always the way it is. It's always like, like the half marathon, the hardest goddamn part of it was when I saw the finish line. Yeah. And like that, I had drank a whole pot of coffee before it too, and it was a mess. And I was just like, my vision was closing in. So that was part of it. But like, it's also just, it is funny. And like, yeah, you just, yeah, sometimes those little details are, <laughs> those are the real big ones when it actually adds up and becomes the thing that you're going out to do. So mm. I don't know. It's an adventure. That's, that's the real point of it. My first, that, that half where I was in the state of flow for like seven miles, around mile 10, uh, we were, we had been running on a beautiful estate, uh, beautiful, either manicured like sidewalks or just like manicured trails, like very well kept. And the last from miles 10 to 13, um, it was like softball sized gravel. It was just horrendous. It was like, the footing was horrible. The mile 12 sign was missing. And so mile 11 took two miles, which no one, it was just horrendous. It was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It was like blazing hot sun by that point. It was just, Miles 10 to 13 were not my favorite part of that. Like miles two through nine were amazing. And miles yeah. were horrendous. And my friend Sean is exactly twice as fast as me. He is a, an incredible athlete. And he ran that same race and he finished it twice as fast as me. So he has the, every time we run a race together, he has the opportunity to come back and cheer for me after he's <laughs> finished, has his water, like gone to the massage tent. Like he's, you know, he's been done for an hour and a half at that point. <laughs> and so he came and he stood at the 13.0 mark. When mm. I came around the corner, there's Sean and he leaned in to where I was passing and he goes, it's less than a tenth of a mile and it's all downhill. And like, when I tell you I fell in love with that man at that moment, <laughs> like, there is no human on earth better than you. That's it. Those are the best, yeah. most, most incredible words I've ever heard a person say. <laughs> less than a tenth of a mile and it's all downhill. It was like, oh, thank you. Thank you for knowing yeah. what I need. <laughs> None of these people know what I need. Um, <laughs> So I wish for you guides along the way in your race who will tell you the truth and give you good news at the same time. And that's our show. As always, Black Market Therapy is a Dead and Mellow production. And to stay in touch with us, you can follow Black Market Therapy and Dead and Mellow Records on social media. And if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to blackmarkettherapypodcast at gmail.com. We wish you all happy holidays, and we'll see you again in the new year. Until then.